anything that's conservative is today either already a pejorative or is en route to being a pejorative. A growing struggle against family, tradition, and nation. Liberals and conservatives, we're going to have to be allies to fight the Marxists. At the National Conservatism Conference in Orlando, Florida, I sat down with Yoram Hazoni, a philosopher, political theorist, and chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation, to discuss the values of national conservatism and what they mean for us today. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Before we start, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, American Hartford Gold. As you may have heard, American Thought Leaders was demonetized by YouTube, and after many months, their rather opaque appeals process has really led nowhere. Yet there are still companies like American Hartford Gold that value freedom of speech and honest discourse, and are sponsoring shows like ours. With inflation on the rise, investing in gold is another option to diversify your assets. American Hartford Gold is a patriotic, family-owned company that not only sells precious metals right to your front door, they can help you deposit gold into a retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k. They've got an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and right now they have a promotion where they will give you up to $1,500 of free silver on your first order. You can just call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or you can text AMERICAN to 65532. Thank you, American Hartford Gold, for sponsoring American Thought Leaders. Yoram Hazoni, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for having us here at the National Conservatism Conference. I've learned a ton. So for starters, thank you for putting this on and thank you for inviting us. I want to talk a little bit about the conference. Before I go there, you were on a what was a very fascinating panel to me. And uh, you were talking about this distinction between conservatism and, cl I guess, classical liberalism would be the way to put it. I mean, and it just, I, I think that's lost on a lot of us. I mean, it certainly was lost on me to some extent, and certainly some of our viewers. I mean, super briefly, I know you've written on this before. I'll try to put it in a, in a nutshell. Uh, liberalism and conservatism are separate worldviews. They're competing movements. Conservatism is, in England, in the common law tradition, is several centuries older than liberalism is. Liberalism is uh, born in the 17th century, and liberalism and conservatism have competed since then. It's true that at some points, like in the Cold War, they were allies, and they may need to be allies again, you know, facing current crises, but still it's important to keep them distinct. When we talk about liberalism, we're talking about a worldview that has as its fundamental premises the claims that every individual is free from birth, or at least from adulthood, is endowed with all sorts of well-known natural freedoms, and uh, must be given those freedoms by government and treated equally. That's liberalism, and we, we're all familiar with it. All the Western countries at this point grow up with it. Conservatism is, in Britain, in America, it's an older indigenous uh, political theory or political system which has at its center the Anglo-American, we can say the, the common law legal tradition, the English language, the kind of Christianity that is particular to, to England and, and America traditionally. The great thinkers in that tradition, so you, 
you can say Fortescue, who was uh, in the 1400s, he, he's still a Catholic. And then once Anglicanism becomes, Anglican Protestantism becomes the central thing, we have thinkers like Hooker, Coke, John Selden, uh, Matthew Hale, Blackstone, going up to Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke is often, they often said to be, you know, the, the founder of this, it isn't even slightly true. Burke is defending a, a conservative tradition that's many centuries old. And the main distinctions are that conservative tradition sees rights as growing out of a historical context uh, by trial and error over history. Not something that was discovered by universal reason, but something that was discovered historically by trial and error in Britain. It has a biblical basis, it has a traditional basis. When we bring that down to today, there are many differences, but one of them is the centrality of the nation, of a group of people loyal to one another, uh, who are different from other nations, have a different legal system and a different worldview, and yearn for and uh, deserve independence uh, rather than being dictated by some kind of universal theory. So for centuries, this uh, English traditionalist nationalism uh, was locked in struggle with the Habsburg Empire, which wanted to conquer Britain and bring it back to Catholicism. Um, but today, the main opponent of traditionalist national conservatism, the main opponent is uh, liberalism, universal, universal liberal order that wants to impose a single liberal worldview on all, all the nations of the earth, rather than giving them the freedom each to be you know, to, to find God and to find truth and stability their own way. Um, of course, in the last year, uh, there's kind of been a Marxist cultural revolution which ta was taken over much of, you know, what was really liberal up until recently. Uh, so we're talking about that at this conference too. But liberals and conservatives at this point are certainly, some of them are going to have, we're going to have to be allies to fight the Marxists. But it's important to remember the the differences because a liberal life is very different from a conservative life. And most conservatives think that ultimately liberalism is not sustainable, that it's uh, uh, because it undermines tradition, uh, it doesn't allow for transmission to future generations. Well, so something very fascinating about what you just said to me is that it seems like you're saying that conservatism is tied to nationalism, whereas liberalism is tied to a kind of internationalism. Is that fair? It's fair at the theoretical level. In, in you know, in historical practice, it's a little bit more. It's a little bit more complicated. Uh, the, there certainly have been famous liberal nationalists. Mazzini and the Italians are a famous example of, of liberal nationalists. There, there was a period in the 19th century where, uh, where liberals and nationalists were on the same side and were closely allied. But liberalism, in most of its forms, uh, not in every single form, but in most of its forms, liberalism. Uh, is a universal creed. It, it claims to be based on truths that are supposed to be evident to people in every nation, and th that's actually the impetus for um, you know, cer certain phenomena like American globalism and European globalism in, you know, in the last uh, 30, 40 years has been driven by this view that liberalism is self-evident to 
or, or it should be self-evident to, to all people. I mean, the idea of creating a liberal democracy in Afghanistan or Iraq to a conservative, that, that looks like an absurdity. It looks inherently absurd because they, they don't have, you know, a, a thousand years of traditions that are capable of supporting this kind of government, this kind of way of life. But liberals don't believe in tradition. I mean, most liberals think if you're reasonable, if you think about it, if you follow my argument, you'll see that liberalism simply is, you know, the final political theory, the end of history. We've reached the political theory that answers all the most important questions for all mankind. Now it's just a question of getting it to them. You can feel that behind many of these ideological foreign wars that uh, America and, and, and some of the European countries have been involved in for the last generation. In, in my book on nationalism, The Virtue of Nationalism, I say, you know, it, it reminds us a little bit of Napoleon, you know, that Napoleon also had this universal liberal theory, and he said, look, this is right for all nations, and he set, set out to conquer Europe and then the world in order to, to impose it. It's strange that it's alive again, but it, it, it flourished mightily with, with, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, it lasted 30 years. Now it looks like it's on the ropes, but it survived long enough to do tremendous harm. This is also fascinating. And of course, you, you're the author of the amazing book, The Virtue of Naturalism. The thing that I always assumed, okay, is that nationalism has kind of become a, like, there's been an attempt to make it a pejorative term, almost, right? And I think there's actually some success in that. Clearly, National conservatism, you know, suggests a very different, a different view. And your book talks about the virtues of this. I assumed, I've always assumed, the reason for that, the reason of that kind of other rating, the idea of nationalism, comes from the Marxist internationalist ideology, right? But what you're telling me here is that this, that that actually, the, there's there's more to that. Yes, I think when you when you're talking about what is and what isn't a pejorative term, it helps to start with the broader picture. Anything that's conservative, anything that that is part of this conservative tradition that I'm describing in Britain and America, is today either already a pejorative or is en route to being a pejorative. So people think that that God is too dangerous an idea to to you know to be brought into schools. People think that anything that's biblical, that's based on on the foundational text of our civilization. But today to say, uh, you know, I learned this from the Bible, people tell you, you're a crazy man. Or, or they'll work systematically to make sure that learning from Scripture doesn't happen in public schools and that it's maligned in the universities to, to such a degree that, that people won't study Bible in the university. So, so it's not just the nation. Um, the traditional family also is at this point now sneeringly called uh, the patriarchy and to be anti-women. It's said to be, you know, anti-gay. You can keep going uh, on hierarchy, tradition, all of these things are, are pejoratives today because Marxists wor worked hard and systematically to make it so, and many liberals participated in that and continue to participate in that. So when we go to, to talk about nationalism specifically, that has its own particular history. Nationalism was, was a term that up until World War II was, was uh, often used as a, almost a progressive term. You know, the, the uh, colonialism and empire were seen as evil or dangerous, or at least, you know, generally not such a good thing. And the freedom of nations, the idea that India should be independent, that Ethiopia should have its independence, that you know Israel could
could be reconstituted. Those were the things that, you know, generous people, magnanimous people in all countries, that they felt like, yes, this nationalism, this, this idea that people should be free to chart their own course, it was until World War II seen generally as a good thing by people who were looking to think about how do we have justice in the world. Even in World War II, the Allies purposely placed the idea of the independence and liberation of nations in the Atlantic Charter. I mean, it was, it was part of the platform of the Allies during World War II. After World War II is a different story, because it is true that Hitler, who was a, a classic imperialist, right? If you read Mein Kampf, Hitler speaks, you know, without without any embarrassment about Germany becoming uh, the lord of the earth and mistress of the globe. That was Hitler's view. He, he detested the independent nation state. He detested the idea that nations should be independent, and his his worldview was to eliminate independent nations. But it's true that he used the word nationalism, and he he stole our word and applied it to his, uh, you know, to his evil doing, to his imperialism. You see, the word imperialism doesn't appear in any significant context in Mein Kampf. He calls what he's doing nationalism, and by that he means the German nation is going to take over the entire planet. That's what we call imperialism, you see. So he stole our term, and many Marxists were happy to run with that, and quite a few liberals were happy to run with that. I don't think we need to to learn our political terminology from from Adolf Hitler. As you're talking, I can't help think Hitler appropriated all sorts of things, symbology, this revival, swastika, all these things into, and it, you know, all, the, all anything that he touched became the worst thing ever, right? Because of because of what the, the what his ideology perpetrated subsequently. It's fascinating. I could talk to you for ages here. <laughs> no, so is part of your goal to try to rehabilitate isn't the right word, but but bring back nationalism as a virtue. I mean, I guess it is, if this is the title of your book, well, right? Well, for, yeah, yeah well, look, first of all, uh, nationalism is back. And I don't claim, you know, that every nationalist, that every individual or every movement that is seeking the independence and freedom of, of their nation, I don't claim that every one of those movements is, uh, you know, inherently just or inherently righteous. There are are, you know, as with everything, there are better versions and there are worse versions. And there are uh, decent and godly men and women who are involved in the efforts to strengthen the independence of their nations. And there are evil men and women who, who are involved in these projects. So I, I'm not a utopian. I don't claim nationalism offers, you know, a magic formula for sol solving the world's problems. But in the book, I, I do make the case, in general, it's the best alternative th that we have, that it's, it's better than these grasping empires that, uh, uh, or even something like the, the European Union, which is not usually thought of as an empire, but but it has many of the same characteristics. It knows no borders. It's constantly trying to, to absorb additional peoples. It, it has a, a monolithic version of liberalism that it seeks to impose on all its member nations. It talks about, you know, subsidiarity and, uh, and federalism and delegating powers. But in, in truth, if the Italians elect a prime minister the European Commission doesn't approve of, they reach into Italy and uh, or a 
finance minister. They reach into Italy and appoint a new finance minister. They twist their arms until they agree to for foreign appointments of their own ministers. The force of a country like, in the case of the European Union, it's Germany. The idea of new world order, which is you know American version of, you know, we Americans know what's right for everyone, so we're going to impose it if necessary by force. Those things have provoked a a growing nationalist reaction. It's been visible for 30 years already, and and it just grows stronger every year. And our job here, I mean, the people who gather in this conference are, we have a few politicians who, who show up, but, you know, we have a hundred speakers here, maybe, maybe four of them are office holders or running for office. The overwhelming majority of the people at the National Conservatism Conference are thinkers of one kind or another. They're uh, authors and scholars and journalists and, uh, and YouTube stars people whose whose business is to try to try to get as deep as they can into good ideas and bad ideas and understanding the the trends of the ideas that are that are shaping our country and and the other countries in the world they come here in order to exchange ideas but also to make friends and to check out the possibility of a broader alliance than maybe would have been possible if they were just you know talking to their friends we're working on refining ideas, we're working on learning, we're work, looking on, on figuring out what books to read and write and publish. Ultimately, this, uh, this kind of work does have an impact on real-world world politics, you know, but we're not here to endorse particular candidates. We're here to figure out what's the best thing to think, what's the best thing to argue for. I feel it's something very important that has a, a crucial place, and, and I think it's working. Well, I mean, it's a, been a fascinating learning experience for me thus far. You know, something just occurred to me. You were talking about the reconstitution of Israel and how that was, you know, seen as a positive thing. I think, like for me, uh, being a Pole, right? My parents escaped from communist Poland in the 70s. Um, Poland, you know, prior to World War One, was partitioned for over 150 years. It didn't. Ex it only existed as an idea, yeah. as I suppose a nationalist idea, right? So for Poles, I think it, the idea that nationalism is a positive thing, I think, is a more obvious, perhaps because of this, yes. as, as it is perhaps for, you know, Israelis or Jews. Yes, it is. Um, and I think people. I keep hitting on this phenomenon that people don't know, don't get what they have. Like in America, it's the immigrants the founders of the Epoch Times who are championing the American spirit and the you know the American dream and, and but but the, act, the 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 Americans for generations are down on America or it, it, this is the I find it so fascinating we, we somehow as a species we don't appreciate what we have yeah well, in the leadership of the Edmund Burke Foundation, we certainly have uh, a good representation of, uh, uh, of uh, people whose families have been here, here many generations. Uh, but, you know, since you mentioned Poland, I think you may know that uh, my vice president at, and, and close friend at the Edmund Burke Foundation was born in Poland. She's a Polish-American, and she is a Polish nationalist, a devout Catholic. And for me, working with Anna has been a tremendous learning experience, you know, because because I think Jews tend to grow up with sort of an instinctive a suspicion of Poland for all sorts of historical reasons. And here she and I find not only that we're, we're in agreement, in fact, feel like we're brother and sister fighting for a similar cause in America 
in Poland, in Israel, and, and, and in other countries. It's, it's not just that we're allies, but through her I've gotten to hear what a Polish nationalist, how a knowledgeable, pious Polish nationalist sees a thousand years of Polish history. And it's simply remarkable, not to say that any history is perfect or ideal um, and, and that there's no friction between peoples, but it's remarkable to see how much there really is that is common between the experience of Poles and the experience of Jews, even, even though our histories are completely are completely different, intertwined at certain points, but in general, just simply completely different histories. It's very, very interesting. A lot of uh, people that I'm aware of lament the idea of the removal of God from the classroom, right? And this is something you were talking about. What is it really, right, that, that created this movement that it's almost sort of unthink this secularism in the classroom and any classroom is kind of sacrosanct as a concept. Where, do, where does that actually come from? It's a very complicated question. It has a long history. I think probably the simplest way to think about it is that the coming of modern science challenged the prestige and standing of many traditional things, including the, in, including the Catholic Church. You can say that it shouldn't have, because uh, w when you learn the history, it turns out that there were actually you know, many religious figures who were, who were very supportive of the new science. But the fact is that in, in the public perception, the coming of modern physics and, and other sciences seemed like it was a better road to truth than the traditional religion and tradition, tr traditionalism generally. And there have been different responses to this, but I think still, even centuries later, the success of modern physics gives vast prestige to all of the sciences. I'd say f physics and medicine are probably the two, the two key things, modern science and modern medicine. So Newton and Boyle and Harvey, these pious Christians who created the new, the, the new sciences of physics and medicine um, and chemistry, their prestige ends up being handed down to the universities. The universities which had been Christian and Aristotelian for most of their history replaced the Christian Aristotelianism, a belief in these modern sciences. This happened, you know, somewhere somewhere around 1810 in Germany, roughly. And the universities have wrapped themselves in the prestige and the success of, of Newton and Boyle and Harvey and, and the others. And uh, that prestige, as far as, you know, the public is concerned, it almost is unchallenged to this day. Uh, if someone is a professor, if they teach in a university, the average person learning there or the average person not learning there says, wow, that must be a learned person. He or she must have tremendous wisdom. This is instinctive in all of us. This is the way that our culture raises us. And uh, the idea that the universities have many, many good scholars, but also a vast number of frauds and charlatans and uh, uh, vicious people who care very little about truth and care mostly about advancing themselves and harming people that they consider their enemies. That's a very, very difficult thing for us. It's coming. There's a, a change in the view of the universities and the sciences, but it's, it's taken a long time. 
and Christianity and Judaism and other traditional uh, systems of belief are still staggering under the blow of uh, being told, we don't need you, we have science. Now, of course, we, we do need science, we need good science. As an Orthodox Jew, I don't, I don't see any contradiction between good science and good versions of Orthodox Judaism. I think they go very well together. But that's where we are. We're, we're still in this moment in human history where the success of science is being used by the enemies of religion to destroy it everywhere and, and quite successfully. No, that's it. It's fascinating. I'm, you know, my, my brother-in-law actually is is Chabad and also an astrophysicist or was, you know, for working for quite some time. It's not doesn't seem to be a contradiction for 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 many people, including the the eminent men that you mentioned earlier. So, just in a in a brief nutshell, um, what are your hopes for you know what will the kind of the, the best outcomes that will come out of the National Conservatism Conference for the coming year and onwards? We have two goals. We're, we're looking to build uh, an alliance and we're looking to refine uh, the set of ideas which can be proudly carried forward by that alliance in order to, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, to save America and, uh, and the democratic countries from the two scourges that became so dramatically evident in, t in the year 2020, which is on the one hand a, you know, a, a, a rising imperialist China abroad and at, at home a version of neo-Marxism which is successfully running a cultural revolution, taking over many, maybe most, of what until very recently were liberal institutions. Uh, I don't think the liberals are strong enough to save almost any of those institutions. To get anywhere, we're going to need a strong tra traditionalism, including religion and nationalism. And uh, those elements, religion, nationalism, at this conference and in this movement are being balanced or rebalanced uh, with, you know, with the, the concerns for individual freedom that are important to all of us, but without a much stronger dose. My, one of my teachers was Irving Kristol, who in the 1990s said modern conservatism is based on three things, religion, nationalism, and economic growth. And uh, that's roughly right. You know, you can el elaborate on it, but that's roughly right. If we can put the national concerns uh, for national independence, national cohesion, national traditions, and the religious concerns back on the table together with the concern for individual freedoms, uh, then we think we'll have a, a political paradigm that will be powerful enough, God willing, to uh, to defeat these other opponents. I admit that it looks pretty tough now, but that's where we're going. And, and who can fit into this coalition that you're envisioning? Almost everybody. There are certain things that, uh, that we've set as, uh, as red lines. We're not interested in forms of nationalism which are looking to distinguish between people on the basis of race. We can have an argument about whether those are even legitimate nationalism, but I, it's not worth the argument. Yeah. National conservatism is uh, not interested in, in partners whose goal is to advance conflict between you know people with different skin colors we don't see that as necessary or helpful or, or moral or desirable we're also not interested in in those nationalists who 
uh, have become fond of dictatorships. Right, so you, you heard a speech here uh, this morning about uh, Orban's Hungary, but Orban's Hungary is a, is a democratic country. You can like Orban or dislike Orban and still be welcome in a national con conservatism conference, but that's a democratic country. If you, if you start talking about countries which are dictatorships, then okay, so that kind of nationalism is not, that, that's not what we're about here. It sounds like a, quite a broad coalition nonetheless yes. to me. Yeah, everybody's welcome to uh, come to the website nationalconservatism.org and begin reading. There's a, a, a number of books that we recommend. I, I obviously recommend my book, The, the Virtue of Nationalism, but there are many others on, on, on the site. We have a, several series of uh, educational videos and, uh, and we hold these conferences. We're looking forward to being in a conference in hopefully in Brussels in uh, the next few months. We're looking for partners. It's such a pleasure to have you on.